Amen. And thank you, worship team. And church, as you are there, and I hope grabbing your copy of God's Word, uh, if you would, go ahead and do that for me and begin looking with me at 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. And we're continuing walking through this incredible book. And as we've been walking through it, I've been recognizing some things about my own approach to the Word of God. Uh, namely, that I'm very aware of the fact that the Word of God is living and active. I'm very aware of the fact that the Word of God is true in its entirety. Uh, but I've been encouraged as we've been walking through this book in particular that there are, within the unity of Scripture, there is a lot of different voices that speak to us. And each of them bring something unique to our understanding of the gospel. This morning, we're going to be looking at a topic that some of you are going to say, well, I don't need to be here for this. This doesn't apply to me. And there's going to be a temptation for you to just kind of tune out what I say. For others of you, we're going to be dealing with a topic that as I address things in it, uh, you're going to be more tempted to tune me out because it does apply to you. And either case, I think we'd be missing the point. There's going to be something in here today for all of us. Now, I'm talking about marriage is what I'm talking about. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And it's important that as we, as we walk through this text together, whether you are married or not, I want you to understand the word of God always applies to the people of God. It always applies. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try as we walk through this text, I'm going to walk through the first part of it, and I'm going to be talking about and talking to you who are married, all right? And for everyone else, I want you to listen to that. I want you to hear that because it's important that we all together, the book of Hebrews tells us, we all ought to hold the marriage bed in honor. We ought to do that. And so together we need to learn about this. But then at the end, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to take and I'm going to look at these principles that we've talked about in relation to marriage and talk about what principles we draw out of that for all of us as we walk in faith, as we seek to honor Christ. All right. So, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the temptation is going to be for some of you because of the topic and because you don't agree with everything that I'm going to say, it's going to be tempting for you to just tune out the whole message, right? <laughs> there will be some of you this morning who, who walk out of here angry. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can guess that that might happen. Here's my, here's my concern, right? Some of you walk out of here offended and all I have to say is join the club. Some of the stuff that Peter says here offend me, bother me, because I have to live this out. Some of you will walk out of here feeling beaten down, dejected. I want you to know that's not the goal. That is not the intent. That's not the hope. These are, these are heavy things. These are weighty things. These are important things. But in the midst of those things, there is always hope in the gospel. And so do not please take this as a challenge that is insurmountable. I want us instead to begin a conversation together over this in conjunction with Peter, whose voice is much different than some of the other New Testament writers, but whose statements resonate with the teaching of the New Testament. All right, now that everybody is thoroughly scared and wondering what in the world is going to come out of the preacher's mouth this morning, let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, 
so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Anybody offended yet? It shouldn't have taken us long to get offended. Ladies, and this is not just directed at you, everybody, how many of you like the word submit? Favorite word in the English language, right? No, none of us, none of us like that word. But that does not mean that this word is not good. Because as much as our culture has taught us, as much as we living in the United States of America want to say, no, we do not submit, we are independent, we are strong, we are free, as much as we want to push back against this word submit, have you ever noticed how often it comes up in the Bible? It's frightening, and and I choose that word intentionally. It is frightening how often the word submit appears in the Bible. It's almost as if God knows us and knows that what we don't want to do is submit. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had one task. What was their one task? Don't eat from that tree. How did they do? And this is not just the woman, this is both of them. Her husband was with her. What did they do? They did not submit. When God shows up to them and gives them an opportunity to repent, what do they do? They do not submit, instead they blame. And ever since, I think it's been pretty clear in human history, we've seen a similar pattern take place in every single instance. When human beings are called to submit, we say no. So why should we be surprised if our response to this passage here is any different. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, we instantly think of all of the reasons why that can't be right. Why that can certainly not be what Paul intends to say. Paul, have you met my husband? Excuse me, Peter. Peter, have you met my husband? Right? You look at that and you're like, hold on a second. There's got to be some clarification here. And I think you're right. I think there does need to be some clarification here. Because so much misunderstanding has been piled up on this word. Our natural rejection of this word has led to, in many cases, us completely misunderstanding what is in view when the word says submit. God is not intending in this word to say to the wives that Peter is addressing, Submit yourselves to your husbands because he's better than you. That's not, that's not at all in view. And we'll get into that when Peter gets around to addressing the husbands. He is not in any way, shape, or form intending to say from this that you need to submit to your husbands and become a doormat and become a second-class citizen 
acknowledge your own worthlessness. No, no, nothing could be further from the truth for Peter, for the gospel, for God himself. Submission is not the undertaking, the placing under of something inferior to something inferior. Instead, it is a voluntary acknowledgement of God. It's a voluntary acknowledgement of God. And then we get into this as, as we walk through here. This, they're not being called to submit to them because their husbands are worth submitting to. Peter even says, some of them will even disobey the word. Some of them are disobedient to the word. But you're not submitting to them because of them. You're submitting because of your value for God. And you're not becoming a doormat for them to be mistreated and abused. And we'll talk about the husbands who would do such a thing in just a moment. You're doing this in order to glorify God. Now, how would it glorify God? If, if it is right, if this is good, how does it glorify God? Because a wife who does this is going to have an opportunity to win her husband to Christ. That's the focus for Peter. His focus is on wife, value your relationship with God, value the promises of the gospel in such a way that you give every opportunity for every person to receive. This is the same God who we're told by Peter is not willing that any should perish, right? He, God, does not, God does not want any to perish. And a God with that kind of heart is the kind of God who changes a wife's heart. When her every natural inclination is to say no, to refuse, he says, instead, submit. He tells them to do this in order that they might be won over without a word. And you say, hold on, preacher. One of you says this, not everybody. I don't expect everybody to say this. One of you says, last week, because none of you remember what I said last week. Last week, you said that if you preach the gospel, you got to use words. And now here Peter is telling these wives, you don't have to preach, use words to preach the gospel. That's not the case. He's making a play on words. He says there are some husbands who are disobeying the word, and they may be won over without a word. They already know the gospel. They've already heard the gospel. They already understand what is motivating this change in their spouse. We need to understand something about the context of Peter's day. We need to understand that what's going on, he's speaking to couples who lived in a day in which a wife, when she married, she was expected to completely subordinate her life to her husband. Many are the examples in Roman literature of the day in which spouses' wives were said, if a wife is to be a submissive wife, she must take on her husband's faith as well as his household. She must put aside her gods and take on his gods. When Peter says to submit, he is not telling these wives married to unbelieving husbands, take on their gods. He's saying, you already know the true God. You have a responsibility to let them see Christ in you. And so even as you refuse to submit to them in this area of faith, demonstrate the transformation of Christ in these other areas. Now, this is, this is not, just because it's in a culture and day and age when that was accepted, is not to say that this is any easier today. When there is autonomy, 
And when there is a recognition that a, that a wife should not give up her faith to join her husband. But does this not challenge our culture in a different way? Maybe than it did Peter? We have this command, we have this urge, submit yourselves that they may be won over when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Then we get to this one. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes. Now I'm going to stop here for just a second and make sure that we understand what I'm not doing. I am not offering fashion advice this morning from the pulpit. I know better. A few, few months ago, weeks ago, I don't know, it seems like it's gone by quick. You wives played a joke on a lot of the husbands in this church. You bought us all the same shirt and we all showed up wearing them. And even some of us who were on a mission trip wore the same shirt. Am I right, Shane? We did. But, but, we men have a problem. We get together afterwards and we say, hey, our wives got us good. What are we going to do for them? And immediately off the table is us buying anything for y'all to wear. We know better. There's no way, wives, that you would wear what we brought for you, right? Amen. I was waiting. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Right? That's a one-way street. And Peter's not giving fashion advice either. Just like we, we husbands of Edgewood know better than to buy our wives all the same dress, Peter's not saying, let me tell you how you need to dress. What he's doing is he's trying to get at the heart. Saying, why do you wear what you wear? Where do you find your worth? Where do you find your value, Christian woman, Christian wife? Do you find your worth and your value in what you wear in order to draw eyes to yourself? Or do you find your worth in your relationship with God? Do you feel the need to flaunt your wealth? your beauty, your power, or are you content to let God receive the glory? It's not a matter of the particulars of what is worn. It's not a matter of saying you've got to wear ankle-length denim skirts at all time or you're just not being godly. It's not that at all. Peter is saying, what's your heart in this? If I read that and some of you were reaching up and taking earrings out and, you know, unclasping necklaces, then you've missed it. Because when we read this, he's not saying you can't wear jewelry or you can't wear fine clothes. He's saying that's not your identity. You are not defined by these things. Your culture wants you to find your value in this. What brands you've got on, how many carats that ring is. But not so for you, Christian. Your value is in Christ, not in what you wear. So, leaving aside the fashion advice for a second, he says, but rather what is inside the heart. And then he goes on to define what ought to be in their hearts. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So instead of wearing all this stuff... Choose what values God. And he says that what God values is a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit. You hear that and you're like, huh. No. I don't know that many of us would define ourselves as gentle. I don't know if many of us would define ourselves as quiet. I don't know that any of us would define ourselves as those things together, gentle and quiet. 
This is a very rare thing to see, especially if what is meant here is wouldn't hurt a fly and never opens their mouth. But that's not what those two terms mean. Gentle in our minds has often gotten a negative connotation. Somebody who won't stand up for themselves, somebody who won't fight back, somebody who will not, cannot take action. It's not what gentle means. As a matter of fact, the greatest thing to understand about this is this is the exact same word that Jesus says defines him, gentle. He says, you are to be meek, right? He talks about the meek inheriting the earth, and that's a shocking statement that somebody who is gentle or meek would inherit the earth. But then later on, when he goes to describe himself, listen, Jesus, the creator of the universe, Jesus, the savior of mankind, Jesus, the king of kings and Lord of lords says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Peter's not putting women down by encouraging them to be like Jesus. He is raising them up and saying, despite what your culture tells you, you can be like the very best humanity has ever had to offer. Despite what your culture tells you, that you're just a doormat for your husband, that you're just a pawn in whatever political game he is playing, despite that, Peter says, Jesus says you can be like him. That's radical in Peter's day. So how radical would it be for us instead of bringing our cultural attitude to bear, we say instead, oh, wow, Peter's saying to be like Jesus. I love I love background study. I love doing research and all that stuff here, guys. I don't try to bring that out very often, but there is a Greek resource known as BDAG, all right? It stands for four German dudes' names. I don't remember their names, okay? But it's just abbreviated BDAG. And on this particular Greek word, this is the entry. I love this way of putting it. This is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. This word gentle means those things. And I love that. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Jesus said, I am gentle. Peter says, wives, be gentle. He tells them to be quiet as well. He says to be quiet. And this is not verbal silence, right? You had this era in history where women were to be seen and not heard. Not so in the Christian church. When... Uh, when, uh, I just went blank on his name, when Apollos is teaching, when he's preaching the gospel and he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about, who is it that pulls him aside? A Christian woman and her husband, Priscilla and Aquila, and they began to teach him more accurately concerning these things, right? Peter is not saying, wives, you just need to shut your mouth. Instead, this is the kind of quiet that points us to a well-ordered life, a peaceful life, a tranquil life. It's the exact same thing that Paul, when he's talking to the believers in Ephesus, he says, this is why you ought to pray for kings and for those in high places, that we might lead quiet and peaceful lives. That's the exact same thing that Paul's saying. In Thessalonians, when he's telling the Thessalonians, this is what you ought to long for, 
that make it your ambition to live quiet lives. This is an idea that is not demeaning, it's not putting down, it's simply saying because of who God is, we don't have to prove anything. We can rest in him. What I am is enough. According to the creator of the universe, I don't have to prove anything to you. This quiet and peaceful life, this gentle and quiet spirit we see has its resonances all across Christian experience. It's not just for wives, although Peter applies it to them here, it's for all of us. This is what is called for. Finally, we have verses five and six, and then ladies, I'm gonna leave you alone and I'm gonna pick on your husbands. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Submitting to their own husbands. This is a vital point, and I, I don't want us to miss this. Wife, you are not called to submit to somebody else's husband. Women, you are not called to submit to men in general. This is, this is not a blanket statement implying inferiority. Instead, this is a specific call to a specific wife and a specific husband. Wives have no more responsibility to submit to a man who is not their husband then anyone else has responsibility to submit to somebody who does not have jurisdiction over them. Wednesday night, I talked about this. We were doing our Bible study and we were looking at this idea of what kind of laws apply to different people. I don't obey the Canadian laws. I don't pay taxes in Mexico. That's not where I'm at. Peter's saying the same thing. Just because there's somebody else out there with some authority doesn't mean, wife, that you have to submit to them. You submit to your husband. It's not a generic statement, involuntary and unlimited. It's a specific statement. Voluntary and limited submission is what's in view. And again, I'll mention this. A wife does not submit to her husband because of moral superiority or any other superiority. As a matter of fact, more often than not, in my observation, husbands are more likely to be the idiot in the equation. I don't say that to offend, I just state a fact, all right? Maybe I'm just looking in the mirror too much. But nonetheless, that is the case. This is not something where the wife says, because you are better than me, I'll submit. No, it's because of God. She puts her hope in God, not in herself and her power, her strength, and not in him, his ability. But her hope is in God. Do not fear intimidation. Why does Peter add that little nugget? Because in that day and age, what he was calling for, holding on to her faith in Christ, not going along with an unbelieving husband and things that would dishonor God, would be seen as rebellion, would be seen as wrong. And he's encouraging her, no, that is right. Do not be afraid Submit where you can and where you can't, don't be afraid of any intimidation. The problem with submission, and when we talk about this subject a lot of times, is there's all of these what-ifs. There's all of these situations that we can imagine, and frankly, sometimes we don't even have to imagine. Some of y'all have lived through them. And some of you are watching them play out in others around you, and you say, but if this, 
What about this potential negative thing? What about this problem that could result? Peter is simply saying, I recognize there are problems. And he is not calling anyone to be in a situation where they are not safe. He is not calling on anybody, again, to be a doormat or to make themselves less than. He is simply saying, do not put yourself in harm's way. Do not place yourself as inferior, but you do need to trust in God. You need to trust in God. Make sure you're safe. Trust in God. Don't fear intimidation. We got this idea that if in any situation we place ourselves under someone else, we get this idea that if we, we, in any situation we were to give up our autonomy, that we could be hurt. Protect yourself, but be careful in that. C.S. Lewis is a writer that I return to time and time again, and particularly on the subject of love. And one of the things that he says in The Four Loves is there's a challenge inherent in Christian or in, in any relationship. In any relationship, there's a challenge, and that is that in order to engage with somebody else, you open yourselves up to the possibility of pain. This is what he says. He says, if you, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Which do you think is a stronger action? To risk or to protect? It's a false dichotomy. These things are not opposed to each other. But if we fall too far on one side or the other, we will miss the heart of God in the gospel. It was a risk for Christ to come. It was a risk for God to give us a decision in the garden, and yet he took it because he loved us. It is a risk to love another person. It is a risk to submit to another person, but it is good. Husbands, in the same way. This is the part that I think we miss. Husbands, in the same way. What does the same way mean? Husbands, just like I just told your wives, something that goes against their natural inclination. Husbands, in the same way, I'm telling you something that goes against your natural inclination. Husbands, in the same way that I just told your wives that following Christ in marriage is not going to make their life easier, as a matter of fact, it's going to make it more complicated and more difficult, in the same way, husbands, the same thing's going to be true for you. Your wife, husband, has given up a lot to deal with you. You have not made her life easier in almost every instance. In the same way, why do you expect that your part in this relationship is going to be any easier? Why do you expect that it's going to be no sacrifice on your part? 
And so he says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. The, the Greek there is actually very specific. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. This, this idea is one that challenges us. Because guys, if you're anything like me, the last thing you want to do is learn anything else, period. How many of you have made it a habit of regularly learning new things once you got out of school and nobody was forcing you to do it anymore? Men in general, and this is not applicable to all of us, don't get me wrong, men in general like to just kind of coast things out. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to think. We just want to do, put in our time. We're very good at compartmentalizing things, putting it in a box. All right. We go into the dating game and we're gonna show our love and our devotion. And so we pursue this woman that we're interested in. And we make all of these plans and we go on dates and we woo our wives. We pursue them. And then we put a ring on her finger and we put her in a box and we put her on a shelf and we assume that we're done. That's the problem most of the time. Having checked the box, we move on, and Peter says, you can't. You can't. You have to continually be learning about your spouse. You have to be continually pursuing her, continually wooing her. In the same way that wives bear the weight of this relationship, husbands as well will bear the weight of this relationship. Live with them according to knowledge. Knowledge of who they are. Knowledge of who God is. Knowledge of all of the times that God told his people, you who are in positions of authority, do not use your authority to lord it over those underneath you. Instead, serve. If anybody would be great among you, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Let him become as a servant. The Gentiles lord it over, but not so among you. So husband, when you read that, wife, submit, that's not yours. Yours is not to demand that. Yours is to embody Christ's serve. Live with your wife according to the knowledge of who she is, of who God is, and of what Jesus has called you to do. Which means, men, you're going to have to learn something. You can't just coast. Get the box off the shelf, open it up, and see if you can learn anything about this one who God has given you. Live with your wife according to knowledge. As, and this is, this is one of those offensive parts again, as with a weaker partner. Now, what is Peter saying here? He's not demeaning women, right? How many of y'all know Ron Hicks over at Henderson Memorial? Ron Hicks is 62 years old. He's been pastoring over there for 20 some odd years. 62 years old, and that man beats me every time we try to arm wrestle. I refuse to acknowledge that that makes me inferior to Ron Hicks. It's simply saying, this man wrestled, arm wrestled competitively for a couple years. He's got something on me. Not just a couple years, but some technique as well. And, yeah, okay, fine, he's stronger than I am too. He still goes to the gym. I never have. It doesn't mean inferior. Be different. Different. And so when he says, 
as with a weaker vessel. He's simply saying she's not inferior, but she is different. Men, don't arm wrestle your wives. Don't use your physical strength as the basis of your relationship, intimidating her into following you, forcing her into anything. No, treat her with honor is what Peter says. Weaker vessel is not a derogatory term. A Ming dynasty vase is a lot weaker than the Tupperware I've got on my shelf at home. It doesn't mean it's worse. As a matter of fact, it's better. It doesn't mean it's worth less. As a matter of fact, it's worth more. As a weaker vessel, and this is what he says then. He says, honor them as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the radical thing in Peter's day. This is the part where all of his audience loses him. When I say submit, I lose my audience today. When Peter said, honor your spouse, husbands, honor your wife, husbands, he lost his audience in that day. This was not the case in his culture. Wives were not to be honored. They were to be used. Wives were not there as co-heirs of the grace. They were subservient, dependent on their husbands for whatever scrap they could get. Peter says, no, not with Christ. Husband, your wife is going to stand before Christ without your help. As a matter of fact, she's probably going to be standing a little closer than you are. She's going to receive, husband, everything that you receive. You've got nothing on her. Treat her accordingly now. Honor her. This is the same honor that Peter just used when he was talking about the emperor. It's the exact same word. He told the Christians, honor the emperor. And now he tells husbands, honor your wives. Are you as excited, Christian husband, to come home to your wife as you would be to meet your hero? Are you as excited to engage with your spouse as you are to engage with the leaders of your community? Honor the emperor, honor your wife. She's a co-heir with you. She is equal with you. You do not have any sort of superiority and this concern that Peter is telling his audience, this concern is not just because husbands were not treating their wives with honor, although that's implied by this. His concern is, look, God takes this seriously. He says, if you, you need to do this, you need to show them honor, you need to live in a way of understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. His point is that if you do not honor your wife, God won't listen to you. Your relationship with God, husband, is dependent on your relationship with your wife. God is so concerned for the well-being of your wife that he will take her side in the argument. God cares so much, husbands, about your wives that if you mistreat her, he will not listen to you until you repent and make that right. Period. Your prayers will be hindered so long as you do not honor her, 
so long as you do not live in an understanding way with her. Do you think God takes this business seriously? There's a lot less material, a lot less words given to the husbands. And so everybody's like, well, why is Peter picking on the wives? He's not picking on them. He saved the best for last. The, the hardest words come with the best punch. Husbands, treat your wives with respect because God cares about that. So much so that he won't listen to you if you're doing that. What would change in our marriages in this church if we as men, when we were hanging out with one another, if we adopted the same perspective as God does? When we hear one of our fellow church members putting down their bride, making fun of them, if we said, whoa, hold on, brother. You're gonna have to back up. If you're saying this kind of stuff to me, what are you saying to her? And if you're saying that kind of stuff to her, God is not listening to you. You need to repent. Wives, same. But men, you're the ones that get the charge. God cares about this, therefore, pay attention. Honor, love. This is the toughest sermon I've preached this year, I think. And you guys are deathly quiet. I want to make sure that you're still awake. And so we're going to shift, and, and I, instead of talking about this in terms of husbands and wives, I want us to then apply this to everybody. You're sitting here, you're not married. You're like, the re everything has gone before, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, it does, but now I'm going to make it apply to you. Based on what we've seen in this text, I want us to understand something. Sin is pushing us towards selfishness and isolation. But Jesus is continually pushing us towards selflessness and interdependence. When he says submit and when he says honor, what he's encouraging the, the husbands and wives to do is to not see themselves as isolated and to not be focused on themselves, but to get their eyes on somebody else. But that's true for all of us as Christians. All of us need this reminder. When I'm pursuing sin, I will inevitably pursue my interests. When I'm pursuing sin, that will inevitably cut me off from the people around me. That is not to be the way of the church. Instead, we're to pursue selflessness, dying to self. And we're to pursue interdependence. I need you and you need me and we work together for this thing. Some of you all are better photographers than I am. Some of you are worse. We saw some great pictures and videos from Brazil earlier, but I've seen some pretty rough ones too, coming back from mission trips with fingers in the lens. You know what happens when you get your finger in front of a photograph? You ruin the photograph. It doesn't matter how good the stuff is in the background. I'm convinced that if ever we have proof of Bigfoot, definitive proof, incontrovertible proof, it will be the first one that doesn't have a finger stuck over the lens. The finger gets in the frame and it messes everything up. That's the same thing for the Christian life. When we insert ourselves into the picture that God is trying to paint, when we put our desires first, we inevitably ruin what he's trying to accomplish. Jesus pushes us towards selflessness and interdependence. Next, your relationship with those closest to you reveals more about your relationship with God than anything else in your life. 
You can stand up on Sunday morning and you can sing the loudest and you can clap the loudest and you could actually clap on time. Imagine that in a Baptist church. Novel concept. You could raise your hands. You could shout hallelujah. When it's called on to pray, you could pray. The most beautiful prayer ever prayed. And yet, if you are dishonoring those closest to you, you are dishonoring God. No amount of public performance makes up for any sort of private lack in this idea of relationship with one another. This and this alone is the best metric for understanding your relationship with God. Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these incredible things? As much as you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Our relationship with those closest to us, married or unmarried, determines, pictures, identifies, diagnoses our relationship with God better than anything else in our lives. Next, Christians should not buy into the cultural lie that function equals value or that sameness equals the ideal. The culture out there is telling you time and time and time again, the culture is saying to you, look, your function determines your value. The reason we don't care about unborn babies is because they have no value to society. And many of the children who could be born who aren't because of abortion would go on to lead lives that really don't contribute much to the GDP. Function doesn't equal value. Value is not some external quality assigned to a human life. Value is something that is intrinsic to them as bearers of the image of God. And so long as we buy into this idea that function equals value, then we will rebel against any sort of function that calls us to a role that we see as inferior. But once we understand that our value as human beings is entirely independent of our function, be that in a marriage or be that in a Sunday school class, we'll begin to understand the image of God confers a great deal of value on every single human being. Then the idea that sameness is the ideal. How many of you like to eat? How many of you plan to eat this afternoon after you leave here? Some people are excited about it, right? Unless you're fasting right now, you're gonna eat. You know how I know? You're breathing. It's a prerequisite. But would you prefer to have every meal that you eat from now on, just chuck the ingredients in a blender, smoothie them up so that you can conveniently slurp it down on your way down the road? Or do you enjoy sitting down to a well-plated and diverse meal? You've got squash over here, you've got steak over here, you've got whatever it is that you like over here, and all of those things together are very different from one another, and yet go into making a meal that you can enjoy. I don't know anybody that would choose smoothies, blending up that good meal over the actual differentiated meal. Sameness is not the ideal. Bland uniformity is not the goal. A beautiful diversity is always what's in view. Same is true when it comes to marriage. Same is true when it comes to life. The Bible's teachings are not hammers we use to beat others into conformity with our desires. They are chisels the Spirit uses on us to conform us to the image of Christ. There's a lot of words up on the screen. I'm going to give you time to kind of take that in. Here's the thing, we come to a passage like 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, and the temptation is for husbands to pull out verse 1 and look at their wives and be like, submit! And for wives to pull out verse 7 and be like, honor! And for it just to be another yelling match. Well, that's misusing scripture. 
It's not meant to be something we use to beat others into doing what we want them to do. It's something the Spirit uses to shape us, to mold us, to chip away those edges until we begin to look like Christ. We have to give the Bible its role in our lives. Finally, don't ask yourself if you like what the Bible says. Ask the Spirit to reveal if you're living what it says. Don't ask, do I like what Peter has to say here? Ask if the Spirit is producing obedience in you. Don't ask, how do, how do I feel about that? Ask, what am I doing about that? How is this changing me? I, shamelessly, I was going to apologize, but then I decided I wasn't going to apologize. C.S. Lewis, again, is one of my favorites here. And in his Space Trilogy... Uh, in the final book, there's this married couple, and uh, the wife is like, I just don't love my husband anymore. I just don't love my husband anymore. And she's given some advice by a mentor that applies not just to marriage, but to so many other things. You do not fail in obedience through lack of love. You have lost love because you never attempted obedience. Christian, do you love Jesus? I mean, that's literally like the definition of being a Christian, right? Somebody who honors him as Lord, somebody who has confessed him as Savior, somebody who loves him enough to give up their life for him. Right? That's, that's literally what it is. And are you finding that you don't like what he has to say to you? It may not be a lack of love that's the problem. Lack of obedience is more likely. Whatever it is that as we've walked through this passage the Lord has been putting on your heart even if it's just man I hate that preacher we are called to respond to the word of God we're, we're called to do something with what he's shown us we need to be faithful to it I'm going to invite Caleb to come we're going to have a time of invitation now in in this time here's the thing it may be that the Lord has used this sermon to prick your heart to challenge you a husband who's not been honoring his wife, a wife who's not been submitting to her husband. It may be that you're just confused and, and you're not sure where to go with this and things in your life have not been working out real well and you're just, God, I need wisdom. Maybe that you want to come and talk with me. It's, it's possible that you want to make a decision about joining the church and you're like, what an awkward Sunday to do that. I want to get baptized. And then next service, we're going to have three young ladies getting baptized. Um, and that's super exciting. And if that, you came this morning ready to say, I want to follow in public profession, you can do that at this time. The key is respond. Whether it's the conviction you've been failing or whether it's a decision you've been needing to make, however the Lord leads, would you, would you respond? Let's stand together and sing.